I don't usually say much about what was involved for me in preparing a sermon, but I will say that this was a difficult sermon for me to prepare because of one or two things. One, when I was in seminary 100 years ago, St. Louis, I had a really tough professor who taught preaching and practical theology, Dr. Robert Rayburn. And he was the kind of a professor who, when you were giving a, your practice sermon, and you got your introduction out, he might stop and say, wait a minute, what in the world are you talking about? Let's try doing that again and try to make some sense out of what you're trying to communicate to people. Or you might be going through uh, a point of your sermon and say, whoa, hold it there. You know, what you're saying is not, is not doctrinally correct. You know, you're preaching heresy. You need to correct that. Go back to your room, correct it, then come back. We'll try it maybe next week. And um, it wasn't always easy. Today, they're real easy at seminaries. But the one thing he said that stayed with me for over 40 years, he said, I'm not going to be with you after you get out into your churches when you're preaching. But just imagine in your mind's eye that I'm standing against the back wall of the sanctuary. And I'm standing there with my arms crossed and have a scowl on my face and I'm saying, so what? And that was the, uh, the burden I had with this psalm. So what? Understand what the psalmist Pastor prayed a prayer unlike any he had prayed before in his life. It was a lament. It was a crying out to God saying, God, please save this little baby. He's one of your covenant children. He can be useful for you in your kingdom. Save him. Tears were shed by the pastor, by the congregation. And we went home after the service. He had a phone call from the father saying, hey, pastor, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, Alex just got better. It was just, it was almost miraculous. And now they think that in a few days, he'll be off the machines, and a few days after that, he'll probably be coming home. So I don't know what happened, but something happened. The pastor was convinced that it was the prayer of his and the congregation that was part of what saved that child's life. When asked, well, why don't you pray like that all the time? He didn't really have an answer. Because we know that most of our prayers, if we're honest, are just perfunctory. We know that we have to say certain things, so we say it. And we don't seem to have much emotion or even, even compulsion that what we're saying is really necessary. But Psalms of Lament are those prayers where the one who is praying that prayer or crying out to God is in such a distress that this is the last recourse left to them. This is all they can do is to cry out to God. Now, in my... Um, Dilemma, what is my main point going to be? This is what I started with. In distress, believers can cry out to the Lord, trusting in God's 
graciousness and promises. Believers can cry out to the Lord. But is that forceful enough? Would it be better to say believers should cry out to the Lord? Or believers must cry out to the Lord in their distress? Well, I don't know that we can tell people when they have to pray, so I'm sticking with my original (laughs) word, can. When you are in that dire situation, just remember that you can call upon the Lord and ask for his help. What is a lament and a psalm of lament? What is a lament? One definition is laments express an emotion that is the opposite of, to that of praise. In the lament, the psalmist opens his heart honestly to God, a heart often filled with sadness, fear, or even anger. With few exceptions, the lament turns to the Lord with confidence at the end. It was kind of a lengthy definition. In the Dark Clouds Deep Mercy book, page 28, this is the definition given there of a lament. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Let's take a look at the psalm, Psalm 77. And I'll read through the psalm, and then afterwards I'll kind of work my way through each of the strophes, each of the sections uh, briefly, because I think the psalm is... Uh, There might be several things in Israelite history that would be, um, might lend itself to this psalm, but it seems as though this is a personal cry, but there are also implications of the psalm of, of how God has worked with his people of Israel through the years. But there's something which is really troubling him. He's not comforting, comforted, he remembers God, he moans, he's in deep distress. The second section says that he is unable to sleep. It's like God is holding his eyelids open. He can't get to sleep. He can't sleep. Maybe you've been in those situations where something is really troubling you. You can't either get to sleep at night or if you are asleep, you wake up and your mind just won't let something go. You just play certain things over and over in your mind and sleep sort of just evaporates from you. And sometimes you just get up and go do something else because you're not sleeping and then when morning comes, you're really tired and, and uh, even in worse shape than before. But he thinks about what God has done in the past. He uses the word remember four different times. Four times. He says in verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit Thanks. Then in verse 6, the section we're in right now, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. So he's awake, so he's maybe singing, remembering things there. And the last two times are in verse 11, where the word is used two times. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. People are prone to 
or get. So we are told a number of times in Scripture in different places to remember. Peter tells us, remember Jesus Christ. Because if we don't, we're going to forget about him. So the psalmist is remembering what God has done. Not what he's doing right now, but what he's done in the past. When I was reading that, I was thinking about Gideon. You know, things are not good for the Israelites, and uh, the Midianites are pressing down on them. They're, they're kind of taking over everything. And Gideon is, is threshing some wheat in a wine press to kind of keep it hidden from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and said, You know, lo, here nights, the Lord said, There's too many. You've got to whittle that number down. The number was whittled down. Then he said, There's still too many. Because if you gain the victory, everybody's going to say it's because of your greatness and not because of me. So there was another test, and then Gideon was left with 300 men, 300 soldiers. And they went out and defeated an army that was vastly superior to them in a, in a, in a route that was just unthinkable even months ago. Gideon saw the hand of the Lord at work. And I think the psalmist wants to see those same things. He talks about God's holiness and mighty works. A little bit later, he talks about what we would think would be the Exodus, talking about uh, him guiding the flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron and going through the great waters and so forth. He's remembering those things. He remembers that God is truly a great God, a mighty God. He is the one who has redeemed his people. And then finally in the last section, he shows us that God's redemption of his people takes place through the Exodus, which in the Old Testament was like the premier event. All other events can be measured against the Exodus. God worked in a very significant way to save his people. When they were beyond hope, with no, no prospect of salvation, God comes to Moses and tells him things to comfort God's people. In Exodus 14, he says to Moses in verse 13, and then Moses responds to the people with these things. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And then down in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Wow. The Egyptians are bearing down, and this Egyptian army, if uh, historians are right, was, uh, was a very experienced army. Over the years, they had made a number of, uh, of other armies flee in routes, and now they're bearing down on the Egyptians who were not soldiers. And um, the destruction looks like it's going to be pretty, pretty finite. It's going to be just devastating. And God says, you know, don't worry about it. Just be quiet. And of course, we know what happened. Uh, 
wind blew, the Red Sea parted, the Israelites went across on dry land. The Egyptians come after them, the waters close up, and the, the army is lost. In one of our Old Testament courses in the LAMP program, we were studying about this, trying to identify who that Pharaoh was. And we knew that that Pharaoh had a number of victories, I just mentioned military victories, and the Pharaoh that came after him had virtually none for quite a few years. Why was that? What had changed? The thing that's changed was the army was destroyed. It took a while to get everything built back up, have new chariots made, spears made, swords made, armor made, men trained. That's what our God can do. There's a sense in which when we cry out to him and we put before him all that was that's causing us distress, he also says, you know, just stand firm. Be still. Be quiet and know that I am God. He says his footprints were unseen. Have you ever thought about how much you've seen God's work as you look at something in the past, but the time you were not aware that he was working? It's pretty remarkable once you start to think about it. We don't see God's work on our behalf. At least most of the time we don't. It's only after the fact that we realize that he has been doing something. Some of you know I was serving as an interim pastor in South Dakota for a while and then got a call from Dan Jackson, pastor of the Green Bay Church, to come and work the LAMP seminary program. Finally yielded to his enticements to come do this. And as the LAMP program started, I was really pleased. I thought, this is why God brought me back to Wisconsin. But something happened several months into that LAMP program Nothing to do with lamp, but I had a conversation with someone who at the time didn't seem that significant, but as time went by, was extremely significant for me and my wife. It's something kind of personal, so I'm not going to share what it was. But I thought, you know, I think God brought me back to Wisconsin in part for that one conversation with that one man. And what he shared with me has been extremely helpful for my family. God led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I want to share several things with you, examples of prayers of lament. Some might be good, some may not be, but um, we know that laments express an emotion that we have within us. Uh, for good, solid Presbyterians, for good Calvinists, emotions are sort of a foreboding word. You don't know. We don't have any emotions. Well, we do, obviously. We do. We may not show it as much as other people do, but we still have emotions. We're happy, we're sad, we're joyful, we 
feel anger, all these kind of things. But we know sometimes people don't seem to have much of their emotions in check. If someone says, you know, they're crying, they say, what's the matter? say, my grandmother died. Well, that's understandable. That seems like a, maybe a proper response to the, that, that bit of news. Emotions are, are good. But if you say, why are you crying? Well, my car was so dirty, and I was just waiting for a nice sunny day to get it washed, and I put it through the car wash. On the way home, it started raining, and now it's all dirty again. Is that something to cry over? I don't not that I know of. Or you say, you know, I've been trying to get my garden in good shape and it looked like things were coming along pretty well. It had a fence around it. The rabbits were still getting through, eating the cabbage and everything else. And so I planted a series of miracles around the perimeter of my garden, plant to plant. It was just a pretty brilliant square of, of orange and whatever other colors are, kind of a brownish color. And I went out this morning, there was this family of rabbits lined up, each one of the plant. They had a napkin tied around their neck, and they were just eating the blossoms off those plants. And I'm just torn up inside. There's just more than I can take. Is that when we need a lament? No, 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 no. So sometimes people show emotion at the drop of a hat, and after a while we wonder, is this real, or is it just something that they do? But real emotion is something which maybe we don't see often, but we do see it. Moses' sister Miriam contracted leprosy, and Moses was distressed about this. And he offered one of the most beautiful prayers, I think, in Scripture for his sister. This is the prayer. Lord, please heal her. So what, that's it? But the Lord healed her of leprosy. Lord, please heal her. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he called out to God. Do you think he just said there, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, it's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think there was some emotion there because of what he was experiencing as he felt forsaken and abandoned by his father. C.S. Lewis, who married sort of unexpectedly, initially a marriage of convenience to a lady named Joy Gresham. And about the time that Lewis really fell in love with her, she contracted cancer or had cancer and and then ultimately she died. And Lewis was devastated. He kept a journal, which became a book, A Grief Observed. And he was going through his emotions through the experience of dealing with her death. And you would think there would be something extremely profound that he would come up with. But the gist of what he said was, Death of someone you love is really painful. But we have to learn to trust God even though we don't understand why things happen. Church planters 
can be in the depths of despair. And you start out uh, with your vision for a church plant. And in your mind's eye, you see people lined up before the stores are open to come marching in and take their seat in the pews. And it doesn't really happen that way. And then when you kind of get things started, you think, you know, we're kind of seeing a little movement, then bang. One family says, hey, I got a job in Pennsylvania. I have another job in uh, Iowa or whatever. You're just gone. And you go through, you know, we're going to die. What in the world is going on? (laughs) But no, this would never have done that. We would have waited, whatever, you know. And then you, you, you reach a point where you say, Lord, the task is more than I can do. You know, I, I may be reasonably intelligent, but I don't have what it takes to see this church established. I need your help. I'm not innovative enough. I don't have enough imagination. I don't have enough of whatever. So please, Lord, it's your church. If you want it to start... You have got to do it. I don't know if Josh has ever prayed that prayer. I was a church planner several places. I prayed that prayer a number of times. And it's like only when you reach that point where you say, Lord, I can't do it, that the Lord says, okay, now you're in a point where I can can really use you. Solomon had a prayer that was similar to that in 1 Kings 3. When the Lord said to him, you know, you're going to be taking over for your father, David. Uh, what would you like me to do for you? And if you go back and you read that response of Solomon, Solomon basically said, hey, Lord, you know, I, I'm not really the person to do this. I, I don't know much about governing people. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know, and then he just had this whole litany of things that were, were problems as to why he would not be a good king. But he said, if you ask me what I want, the one thing I want, I guess, is just wisdom so I can do this job correctly. And God said, good choice. And because you asked for that, I'm going to give you these other things you didn't ask for, wealth and so forth. And Solomon is known for his wisdom. Sometimes couples... Sometimes couples can have children without too much effort. But sometimes couples have a difficult time having children. And we know that 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 can be an anguish for people when they really want to have children, but they're not able to have children. This is one of the things in um, the uh, Dark Skies Deep Mercy, he talks about that, one of the laments that people will have. Like Hannah, sitting by the temple, praying to God for a child. She says she was praying in her mind, but her mouth was moving. Eli, the priest, thought she was drunk and goes over to chastise her. She said, I'm not drunk. It's just, I, I, I want a child so badly. I'm just praying to God. Her prayer was answered. The child's name was Samuel. A single person may wish to be married and cries out to God, please, Lord, put somebody in my life that I can love and be with. 
Sometimes God does, sometimes he doesn't. A dear friend of mine was a classmate of mine in college. She was a member of the, one of the first churches I served, and she was single. And she wanted to be married more than anything in the world. And she expressed it to me, I don't know, several times. The last time I saw her, she took me aside. She said, you know, you know how I wanted to be married, and, and I've wrestled with this, I've cried out to God, and it just seems as though that's not God's will for me. And I've accepted that. I said, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, she said, I have a contentment I haven't had for years. And then it was two weeks later, we got word that she had been killed in a car wreck. Now, I'm not saying that if you wrestle with things with God and you come to an understanding, then you're going to be toast. It's not that. <laughs> but I do think for her, that was the issue that she had to deal with. And you can argue with me about this, but I think that when she, she came to grips with that and was accepting of what God's will was, there's a sense in which there really was no reason for her to remain on earth. And the Lord took her home. But we missed her. We missed her a lot. Someone may be entangled in a sin and wishes to be free from that. Maybe it's alcohol, drugs, porn, gossip, stealing, gambling, whatever it may be, and, and they reach a point where they just cry and say, Lord, please help me. Are these things really serious? I had an acquaintance when I was in the Navy Reserve who committed suicide because of gambling debts. And I think his rationale was, I'm probably worth more dead than alive. And this was somebody I spent quite a bit of time on because he was the, um, well, in, in the military they have, if somebody dies in the military, you have a casualty notification officer who goes to give the information to the family. And usually they like to take a chaplain along. And I was the chaplain. He was the uh, CACO officer. So we spent, I don't know how many hours in cars going all over the state, at least northeast Wisconsin, talking about this. And that's probably one of the most difficult things that you can do. I, I remember one place, we were up in, uh, I think, Bailey's Harbor. We finally found the house. I get out, and before I go knock on the door, I'm just sitting there trying to take a deep breath, just kind of get ready for this. And I look across the hood of the car, and he's over there doing the same thing, just because it's, it's hard. So how could somebody who knew how hard it was to deal with a death like that commit suicide? I don't, I don't know. But he did. People reach an end and the pain is such that they have nowhere else to go, I guess. These are the kind of things, and we keep going on, these are the kind of things that cause people to cry out to God in a cry of lament, a prayer of lament, asking for God's help. Asking for God's help. And don't say, well, a real Christian doesn't ever have doubts or have things like this. In his book, True Spirituality, Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who died about uh, probably about 40 years ago now, who was the Christian theologian, philosopher in the latter part of the 20th century, 
talks about a time with his ministry there in Switzerland that he just, he had some doubts. Is, is all this stuff I read in the Bible really true? And he called out to God and said, Lord, if it's true, let me know it beyond any doubt. And he took some time. He would hike in the Alps or he would walk in the hayloft of a barn if it was raining. And then one day, it was like the, like the sun just came out. And I knew that these things I've been studying and reading about are really true. The events of the Bible are real events, things that happen in human history. And the confidence that he'd had before came back. And he said, I'm not a poet, but one of the things he did, I wrote a psalm. I wrote a song. They didn't share what that was, but uh, he was a pretty good writer, at least in, uh, in, uh, in prose. So I assume the psalm wasn't probably as bad as he thought. We run into a number of difficulties with prayer and especially with lament because some people cry out and lament for things which are really insignificant. I knew a lady once who, uh, I almost used to brag about this. She said, yeah, I was going downtown and I had a a meeting, I was late for it, and just, I prayed, God, please give me green lights at every intersection. Or, you know, I, I'm running late, I've got to have a good parking space. Please give me a parking space right in front of the building I need to go into. And um, I don't think it's wrong to pray a prayer like that, but, you know, say, well, what, what has your God done for you? He gave me a parking place downtown. You know, that's... Seems kind of trivial, doesn't it? That's not the kind of thing we're talking about. We're talking about being in distress. We're talking about coming before the Lord with some boldness and say, Lord, I need your help. I asked a couple of you earlier today, if you're familiar with John Newton's hymn, Come My Soul, Thy Suit Prepare." Anybody know that? I know one person knows it. So. Okay, it's probably not one of his more familiar songs, although it is in a lot of the older hymn books. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. You say, what in the world is he talking about? What kind of a suit is this? I'm not wearing a suit. I would have a sport coat and slacks. Well, the suit he's talking about is like a lawsuit. Because the Puritans had an expression that would seem very foreign to us. We're going to sue God in prayer. What does that mean? We're going to sue God in prayer. We say, Lord, you have made these promises in your word, and we want you to do what you said you're going to do. I remember what you said. You said you would be our God. We would be your people. And Lord, we expect you to take care of us. He goes on to say, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power such, none can ever ask too much. 
isn't that sort of what we've been talking about in this psalm, Psalm 77? In boldness, come before the Lord. Do not be timid. Ask, seek, knock. Knock with a... That's being bold. That's what the Lord wants us to do. So over the next uh, weeks, there are going to be other psalms of lament, and you'll see different perspectives on that. Uh, here we're not told what, what the answer was for the psalmist. But as he has, as the Lord has incorporated this psalm into Scripture, there must have been a good outcome for the psalmist as he recounted God's works and he's asking for God to remember him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we do thank you for the psalms of lament. These are probably not the kind of psalms we normally would would think that we're going to read, although these are the psalms that we do read when we're in, in trouble, when we have agony of soul. So Lord, we just pray for your, your spirit just to continue to work in us and show us your goodness and grace, even in the darkest hours. In Christ's name, amen.